While we are preaching in the Old Testament book of Amos, uh, we are reading through the New Testament book of James. Uh, and as you can see there, we are still in chapter one. Heather's going to come and read it for us. Please pay attention and follow along as she reads. Heather. James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text from Amos together. Uh, last week I used this uh, analogy that I want to begin with today, and I, and I, I told you to picture uh, a holy man, a priest, a shaman of some sort, out on, the, on a battlefield whipping up the troops. And he's out there telling them that God is going to get all their enemies. God's going to fight on their behalf, and the army is believing him. So picture this holy man out in a field telling the people, God is going to get the Syrians, and the army cheers. And God's going to get the Philistines, and the army cheers. And God's going to get the Phoenicians, and the army cheers. And God's going to get the Edomites, and the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and the army cheers and cheers and cheers. And then he says, God's going to get your enemy cousins who live in Judah. And the army roars, because everyone knows family fights are the worst fights. And if this were a typical war oracle, if it were a typical holy man, then he would turn from prophesying death and destruction from their enemies and talk about the victory, the joy, the spoils that would be theirs. But this is no typical war oracle, and this is no typical holy man. There is no prophecy of victory. In today's text, Amos tells Israel, remember that theological principle that led to, or that is leading to death and destruction, fire for all your enemies? Remember that? It's going to be applied to you. The same measuring stick that we've used to measure the Phoenicians and the Syrians, that same measuring stick that has measured them and found them wanting, it is going to be held up to you and you will be found wanting. This is not a typical war oracle. It's a message from God to his wayward sons and daughters. And today's text, as you've kind of, kind of guessed, it's a continuation of last week's. We paused in the middle of a sermon. Not usually a great thing to do if you're preaching texts, but you'll have to forgive me for that. Because uh, Amos first was talking about all these nations, but now he's kind of turning from considering the fate of the nations to Israel. What's going on with Israel and what's going on with their cousins uh, in Judah? I want to take this text in three sections, if this is helpful for following along or taking notes. We'll talk about present unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness in part two, and then part three, I'm simply calling consequences. Now, just in case you missed last week, it is important to realize what's going on here. Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has split into two kingdoms after Solomon, north and south. Israel's the name of the northern, Judah the southern. Amos is not a northerner. He's a Judahite. He's a southerner, but he was called by God, has gone to speak to the northern kingdom. And so far, his message is kind of great. If you're an Israelite, God's going to punish all the nations that surround you. Amos goes around like all the points of the compass and like God's going to get the ones 
ones who live north of you and to the south of you and to the east of you. And you know, the west is the water. But for each nation, God say, or Amos says, God's going to get them. And he keeps making the same speech over and over. He made it six times last week. He says, for the three transgressions of whoever, Moab or whatever, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. He gives this general accusation. Then he makes a specific accusation, a specific a sin is listed. He said, well, you've enslaved people, or you've killed uh, you know, pregnant women, or you've done, done these terrible things. And then finally, a consequence, very similar each time, a consequence of fire and destruction is proclaimed. So every speech went general accusation, specific accusation, pronouncement of judgment. Six times in last week's text. So look with me at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The exact same thing, general accusation against Judah, the southern kingdom. But then skip down a couple sentences to verse five. So I will send a fire upon Judah, it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Pronouncement of judgment, part three, the same as all the other nations. Now what's different about Judah from the other six speeches, the other six nations that came before it, is the specific accusation, what comes in the middle. Again, if you recall, if you were here, when it came to all the other nations, God accused them of crimes that people in general agree with are crimes. Killing of innocents, enslavement, uh, you know, and they defile the bones of the dead and some other stuff. But there was not one mention of God's law. God kind of appeals to general you know, knowledge of what, what's good and what's wrong, or good and right, right and wrong. That's the words I'm looking for, what's right and wrong. But when it comes to Judah, the, though the general accusation and the judgment are the same, the specific accusation is different. If you look in the middle of verse four, because they, that's Judah, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. So Judah's problem is different from the nation's. Judah knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, because God had told them, this is right and this is wrong. They knew what God wanted from them. They had the benefit of the law, and the prophets, and the priests, and the temple, and the covenant, and everything else, and yet they had disobeyed. It's, very, it's quite a, kind of a different problem. Now, last week I, re- I referenced Romans 2 and 3 to, to explain how Paul says, uh, people without the law... If you don't have the law, they're condemned by the law that's written on their hearts. If you don't have the law, you perish without the law. But he kind of goes on in that same section in Romans 3 to say, if you have the law, but don't keep the law, you fall under the same judgment as those without the law. Like the two roads, they're different, but they end at the same place. And Romans 3.19 specifically says, in this way, the whole world is held accountable to God. No one has anything to say. Every mouth is stopped. That's how Paul puts it. You have the law, you don't have the law, it doesn't matter, the judgment is the same. So those who know better, Judah, will be judged as such. Judah had all the spiritual advantages a nation could have, and yet was headed to the same destruction. They had the same judgment pronouncement as all the other nations. But it's not just Judah. Look at what God says about Israel. The same formula begins again for the eighth time in verse six. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. It's a brilliant speech, by the way. It's very, very, very good. General accusation is the same. But then God lists seven specific things Israel has done. It's a much longer, a much more in-depth accusation than anything we've seen so far. And because of our sort of cultural and linguistic distance from the text, I have some explaining to do about what exactly he's accusing them of. But I can generally say all seven sins are filed under the same heading. 
In each case, it's some sort of exploitation of the powerless or the less powerful. Each sin is related to a more powerful person, powerful in different ways, using that power wrongly against a less powerful person. Okay, that, that's the general heading. Now let's, I'll, I'll quickly give you the seven explanations of what's going on here. Sin number one, right there, they sell the righteous for silver. Now that sounds like enslavement, like they own a human and they're selling a human, but Hebrew textual experts will say, no, it's actually something like unnecessary foreclosure. They're sort of selling them out. That's a phrase we use. A rich person has exacted some kind of leverage over a poor but righteous person, and then without mercy, without pity, without sort of any, any sort of benefits, they, they, they just pursue their rights. They get the silver that were due, but they kind of sell another person out along the way. Sin number two, they sell the needy for a pair of sandals. This is kind of similar. Uh, this is a reference to a person taking advantage of a needy person over a paltry sum. Sandals are one of the, I mean, they still are, kind of a cheap thing you buy. So some person has made a minor loan, uh, you know, a pair of sandals, and instead of being merciful to, with that loan, instead of cutting a deal, the powerful person sort of squeezes the poor for every penny over a paltry debt, a pair of sandals. Sin number three, in verse seven, they trample the head of the poor into the dust. That's a more active kind of exploitation than verse six. They're actively harming the poor. Some uh, scholars argue, but it's possibly a reference to physical violence. Sin number four, they turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now, this is a reference to a, a powerful person getting their way unjustly in a court setting. So a powerful person is using uh, their leverage or their money or their connections, their something, to steer an afflicted person off track. See, the, the, the way of the afflicted is being turned aside. The afflicted person is running towards justice from a judge or whatever, and the powerful person, through some means, is diverting them off track. Sin number five, a man and his father go into the same girl. Now, this is a change from the legal courtroom setting. In this case, scholars will tell you this is not a reference to prostitution, but likely a reference to a father and son using their position in a household to extort sex from a household slave or servant. It's not technically legal. It wasn't legal in Israel. But you can imagine the ways which the owner of a household and his son, the heir to the household, had a lot of power over any slave or servant they had, could abuse that power for sexual ends. Now, this particularly heinous infraction breaks commandments and laws about adultery, incest, family relationships, sexual abuse, abuse of power, and we could list more. It, it's a gross sin. And what God says about this, he says about this one, possibly including the ones before it, but at least this one, that this kind of situation, this sin, leads to a, a place where God's name is dishonored. The very fact that this sin exists in Israel Cast a stain on God's name. That's what he says. God's name is dirtied because of it. Sin number six, look at verse eight. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now again, this requires a bit of explanation. In ancient Israel, it was allowable in their law to take physical possessions in lieu of like money, gold or silver, if you were, if you were uh, making a loan to someone, maybe lending them a field, lending them something else. Just like we would give over our credit card information to the, to the car rental company, it's a pledge, you know, return the car in good shape or you know, we'll charge you. So in ancient Israel, a person would give their outer jacket, sometimes 
sometimes as a pledge to, to return something that has been loaned to them. Like, I'll give you my jacket now, you give me something else, we'll trade back later. But if a person was not able to repay the loan for some reason, that collateral, the outer jacket, could be taken in lieu of repayment. However, Israelite law also stipulated certain things could not be kept as collateral. Things like outer garments that would be needed for warmth. <laughs> the way you all need your outer garments for warmth right now. Or a grinding stone, something like, or, or an essential tool of a person's trade that would enable them to make money to pay back a loan. You couldn't hold that as collateral. So what's happening in verse 8 is that there's exploitive lending practices taking place. Powerful people are returning what they should, or are keeping what they ought to have returned according to the law. And in, in fact, the reference to lying on garments beside altars sort of a, makes it clear that these are religious people. Whether the, what God they're worshiping, who knows? But religious people are doing this. The seventh sin, also in verse 8, very similar. In temples, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. It's kind of a reference to unjust fines. Rich and powerful are toasting their successes with stolen wine. They're, they're frivolously and sinfully charging fines. Now, what do we learn from this list of sins? Well, the first thing, and perhaps a counterintuitive thing, these sins do not appear to be on the same level of barbarity and cruelty as the sins of the nations. They're not as bad. There's no enslavement, no murdering of innocents, no defiling of dead bodies, and so on. No, look, exploitation, abuse of power, these other kinds of abuse, still bad. But we, it kind of leads us to this principle. Greater revelation means greater responsibility. The people of God, they should have known better. You can't keep that garment as collateral. It's written in the law. You should have known. The people of God are being held to a different standard because they have the light of God's law in his presence. It's not acceptable for the people of God to be exploitative, to abuse their power. The law was supposed to be a tutor. It was supposed to lead them to holy living. All it's done is, is spark their imagination for different kinds of sin. Greater revelation, more knowledge means more responsibility. Which leads us to a second principle of what we learn here, is that God's people will be judged. Now just like all the nations, God sees everything done on the face of the earth. He's not just looking at them, he's looking at us. Our clever schemes are not hidden from him. You may have exploited your renters, your employees. You may have gotten your way when justice was not on your, on your side. But there is a day of reckoning. God's people do not escape God's scrutiny. In fact, New Testament writers will tell you judgment actually begins at the household of God and then spreads out there outwards to everyone else. And particularly the focus here on Israel, and we might take this to heart, is how the powerful use their power. Now, according to surveys, very few of us think we have much power and privilege. There's always some survey that comes out that like 90% of Canada thinks they're middle class. You know, there's, there's no upper class, there's no lower class. Aren't we all just the same class? When we think of power, we think, oh, there's like three people in government or some CEO or some professional athlete. They have power. I don't really have any. I think this passage is about how you use the power you have. You may have less than your friends, sure. That's not the point. The point is this question. To what end is your power wielded? What are you doing with any power you do have? 
And I might add to that, according to this passage, legal right does not make moral right. Simply because a country says that is a legal thing to do does not mean that God thinks it's okay. Simply because Canada has a law on the books that allows you to do something does not mean that God is, sort of throws up his hands like, well, Canada said it's fine. You know, God has his own standard that if you are a Christian, you live up to. So if you are a Christian, there's a moral obligation for how you use your money, how you use your body, how you use your property, how you use the court system, how you use your workplace. Christians are not to be people who exploit who take advantage in unfair and unjust ways. Judah and Israel have both been unfaithful, and God will not let them off the hook. Now, I know that was a long section. That was, that's part one. It had a lot to explain there. Part two, let's talk about God's faithfulness. So remember the formula we're working off of, general accusation, specific accusation, pronouncement of judgment. So with Israel, we've had a general accusation. We've had a long and detailed specific accusation, And then what comes next? Uh, Not so fast with Israel. Look at verse 9. Yet it was I. So no pronouncement of judgment, not yet, but a contrast. And the key word there is yet. It's a word that adds detail and color. Something has already been said, but we need to to contrast it. And what God does in verse 9 through 11, in light of Israel's disobedience, he reminds them of what he has done for them in the past and the present. Three actions he attributes to himself, he reminds them of. Action number one, God says he destroyed the Amorites for Israel's sake. Now, if you are a Bible person, you'll know when Israel arrived at the land of Canaan, it was called that because it was full of Canaanites. So there, were, there was people who were already living there. There was nations already there. And they were big and powerful, much physically uh, more, more powerful than the, and larger than the Israelites. Actually, there's sort of a story. I find it funny. Uh, but Israel goes to spy out the land, and the spies come back, and everyone's like, what was it like? And everyone's like, oh, they have great fruit and you know, vegetables or whatever. But they said, the one spy says, it, it's not attributed to anyone, but he says, we felt like grasshoppers next to the people of Canaan. It's this sort of really uh, beautiful imagery of like, uh, what it felt like to be up against these sort of giants, these, these tall people who lived in the land. But despite all their disadvantages, God gave them victory after victory, after people more numerous than them. And that's what God reminds them of in verse 9. He says, the Amorites, these Canaanites who lived in the land, they were as tall as trees, as tall as cedars, as strong as oaks. And God destroyed them. God removed them from Canaan so Israel could be planted there. Action number two, God brought Israel out of Egypt. This, of course, is one of the most famous stories in the Bible with plagues. God brings all of Israel out of a land of where they had been enslaved, cares for them in the desert, brings them to Canaan. In our evening services uh, last year, Jim preached through a number of stories about Israel's time in the desert. And it's just so encouraging to remember how time after time, God just miraculously provides. The people get all grumbly about a lack of meat, and God's like, I'm going to give you so much meat, you're going to like hate meat. Like, and all these flocks of uh, birds come, and the people get thirsty, and God provides water out of a rock. And then they have water, but it's bad, it's bitter, and God makes the water sweet. And, and over and over, it's this miracle after miracle of God caring for his people. And that's what he's reminding them there. I, I, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you to this other land. And the third action, God says he sent prophets and Nazarites. Now, whereas action one and two, those were sort of in the distant past now uh, when, when Amos is speaking. But uh, the, this third action is both past and present. Prophets like Amos were raised up by God to keep the people faithful 
See, priests, they did the day-to-day, year-to-year work of offering sacrifices, running the temple, organizing the great feasts. That's what priests did. But prophets, they had kind of uneven and irregular work. They'd confront sinful kings, or they'd call the nation to repentance, or they'd, they'd, they'd pray and inquire of God on the people's behalf, or, or deliver messages. They did all these sorts of things. They played an important role in Israel's history, particularly in keeping people faithful to the covenant. So God says, I've sent you these people all the way along. And in addition, God says, I've also sent Nazarites. Now, it's, exact, it's unclear the exact role Nazarites played in, in the Jewish-Israelite society, what their responsibilities were. What we know is the vows they took. They would take strict vows to not cut their hair, not shave their head, and not to drink wine. And then they would dedicate themselves to the Lord for either a time, a season of life, or for a whole life. Samson, if you've heard of him, he's, he's the most famous, probably Nazarite we have, uh, or that, that there was. And God tells Israel here in verse 11, he's like, I, I, was, I was sending you Nazarites for your good. Like these people who were set aside and dedicated to me, they were, they were trying to be spiritually helpful to you. And so God reminds Israel, I've sent prophets, I've sent Nazarites, even Amos, a prophet, delivering this sermon, it's evidence right in front of them, God has not given up on you. So we have these three actions. What is God saying in them? What he's saying, the argument he's kind of making is, the appropriate response to God's, uh, of God's people, to God's kindness, his salvation, should have been gratitude, thankfulness, and a life of similar action. The, the people of Israel, they should have been imitating God in his generosity, in rescuing the helpless, in showing mercy. But of course, they aren't living like that at all. They're grinding the poor into dust. They're exploiting power for their own gain. They're not being merciful. And as verse 12 points out, not only are they not grateful, not imitating God, they're actively opposing all the prophets and Nazarites. They're telling prophets, stop talking to us. They're telling Nazarites, here, just have a little bit of wine. You'll abandon your vow. Friends, God's kindness toward his people in every age is supposed to make us like him. The church is supposed to resemble God, not in God's power, but in his character. We're supposed to, be look like, supposed to look like Jesus. See, how is strength meant to be used? How is power supposed to be used? For mercy, for justice, for salvation, for kindness, for grace. We know this because that's how God uses his power. And God reminds Israel, despite everything I've done for you, despite my example, you've gone the opposite way. You aren't kind, you aren't gracious, you're mean and cruel. But that leads us to part three the consequences. Look with me at verse 13. It begins with this word, behold. That word means look or pay attention. And after making his case against Israel by using the example of all the other nations and now citing their own specific sin, God says, you know, like, like you're talking to a toddler, like pay attention, you know, look at me. But there's actually no fire and destruction promised to Israel. Did you catch that? It's different. He gives them first a word picture God says, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Now that word translated press, it's got all these meanings and and connotations. It can mean things like crush or squash or trample. But the picture here, whatever word you kind of like, is of a fully laden cart, even like an overflowing cart, crushing the grass or crushing the dirt road that it's traveling on. It's, it's, It's squashing it. 
One commentator said, uh, he kind of somewhat graphically compared this word picture to, to an animal that's been struck and run over by a car. It's a little gruesome. But God says in verse 14 and 15 that sort of what this means is that the nation is about to suffer unparalleled, catastrophic military defeat. Now, I said this last week, but again, I'll repeat it for those who weren't here. At this point of world history, Israel's doing pretty well. If you read 2 Kings 14, uh, it talks about how they were reconquering old territory. They'd pushed the Syrians back. They'd taken all these towns back. Uh, Historians will tell us at this point of history, Israel has borders that rival Solomon's kingdom. The nation's as healthy militarily as basically it's ever been. They were strong and fast and brave. They had a regionally dominant army. Their great hope is in their military strength. It was working for them. And in these last few verses, God says, I'm going to take it away. Your fastest warriors are not going to be fast enough. Your strongest warriors, they're not going to be strong enough. Your archers won't be able to stand up. Your horse riders won't escape. The bravest men in your whole army are going to flee in terror. In fact, you are going to run naked and screaming from the battle. Man, it's a, it's a somber, dark note this sermon ends on. And it's a warning. It's a warning to them. It's a warning to us. The smoke detector is going off. Your prosperity and your power, and our prosperity and our power, it carries with it a set of spiritual challenges. When, when, when you're prosperous, when you're doing well, you think, God's on my side. Everything is going well in my life. Surely God is, God is with me. That's what we think, so we whisper to ourselves. And God says, no, no, no. Prosperity and success do not mean God's on your side. Now, neither does it mean God's against you. But what we learn here is that there are temptations inherent to prosperity we must be aware of, particularly when it comes to trusting in our success and in our relationships to those who are less powerful, less fortunate. And from the example of Israel, we learn that sometimes God strikes the things we trust in so that we see we can't really trust in it. Israel's great hope was in its army, its military strength. But what's yours? What's yours? Israel thought all was well. They did not realize a day would come when their army would be utterly destroyed. It wasn't that far away. In Revelation 3, uh, Jesus speaks to this church at a place called Laodicea. And the words are strikingly similar to this prophecy from Amos. In Revelation 3.17, Jesus says this to the Laodiceans. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the church at Laodicea thinks they are rich, thinks they are prosperous, thinks they don't have any needs, but they don't see themselves rightly. They're deceived. They have failed the first and second great commandments. They have not loved God with their whole heart. They have not loved their neighbor at themselves. They are pitiable, not prosperous. They are naked, not clothed. They are poor, not rich. And ancient Israel is no different. They've failed to love their neighbor. They've exploited and damaged their neighbors, and by so doing, they have failed to love their God. Now, what should we do with a passage like this? Well, I think it's helpful to look at what Jesus told the Laodiceans to do. If you realize in your prosperity you have forgotten God and misused your neighbor, 
But what Jesus says to the Laodiceans is Revelation 3.18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me, buy from Jesus, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so you may be clothed, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. And what he means by that is when you've arrived at the end of yourself, when you understand that you can't save yourself, when you realize you keep trying to do good and failing, that you come to the Savior because he is the only one who can make you spiritually rich, give you a new clothes of white, give you medicine for your broken eyes so that you might learn how to see you. This passage from Amos shows us there's no salvation outside of Jesus. Last week we said, if you're not a church person, there's, there's judgment there. Here we learn, if you are a church person, there's judgment there too. Doesn't matter if you have the law. Doesn't matter if you don't have the law. Doesn't matter if you've sinned extremely, heinously, cruelty, barbarity, or if you've sinned in secret and quiet. It doesn't matter. Every one of us is in danger. We're unable to save ourselves. Every one of us must turn to Christ. That's what we learn. There's no salvation. There's nowhere else to go. Church person, non-church person, doesn't matter. And the kindness of God offers us salvation. He turns our hearts. So when we begin to believe, when we begin to follow him, we also begin to look like him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage in Amos. Though it is difficult, it's, uh, it's somewhat dark, disturbs us perhaps. Please use it to awaken us. Please speak to our hearts with it, that we might see the seriousness of sin, the danger in not turning from it, the danger in refusing Christ. Please watch over us. Please help us. Please change us. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.